land is me Rock, water, animal, tree They are my song My beings here where I belong This land owns me From generations past to infinity Welcome to another episode of Law of the Land, Nature Reparations Through an Indigenous Lens. My name is Sean Appo from the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. I'd first like to start by acknowledging the Gadigal and Wongal people on whose lands I live and work mostly. Uh, I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today is a solo episode, so you'll just hear my voice for the next 20 minutes. So uh, please don't hang up straight away. Please uh, continue to listen. We'll be talking about um, a range of things today, mainly to do with my role in New South Wales, but it also has larger implications to other places where we're trying to work. We will talk about setting up projects in New South Wales, um, the different methodologies we've looked at to uh, implement those projects. We talk a bit about um, investment and how difficult um, investment has been for us to uh, implement some of those projects so far. And we'll also talk uh, talk about um, the cultural fire credit that we are um, talking with a whole range of different people to help us to get that um, system up and running. And um, there will be some of the stuff that we talk about today, we'll touch on um, some of the information that we've heard from other, other podcasts. So, you know, if you haven't listened to some of the other podcasts, you know, it will contain information today from from Rowan Foley, the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation CEO, um, a little bit about um, the high integrity um, work that um, the core benefits ver- verifications framework um, that uh, Lisa McMurray spoke about. Um, we will also talk a little bit more about the nature reparation stuff that, that Barry Hunter and I spoke about um, last month and also touch on some of the, some of the conversation that we had with uh, Joe Morrison um, in the last couple of weeks. So uh, I wasn't trying to bring a lot of this stuff together, but um, just a lot of the conversations we've had so far does meander through a lot of those topics that we've already spoken about. They won't take it away from me. I have a very uh, varied work background. Uh, I've worked in a number of different sectors um, from building, from the building industry, the mining industry, farming, uh, public health, uh, working in places like the Aboriginal Health and Medical Research Council in New South Wales. Uh, worked for a couple of years with PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, and sort of towards the end of my um, work with uh, public health, I was working for the National Centre of Indigenous Excellence where we really did some, some innovative stuff around um, tobacco control and uh, healthy lifestyle programs um, with the local communities. And look, through that work, we, um, we filmed TV ads and had ads running on TV. We uh, produced a documentary, a 90-minute documentary that, again, was played on the ABC and NITV. Um, we built apps that we were using to do data collection um, with the community and to be able to sort of show some um, behavioural change to help people to 
make better choices around uh, living a healthier lifestyle. Um, and we also set up our own uh, YouTube series around um, giving people some ideas about, um, you know, healthier recipes or exercise programs. We had um, different role models from different groups within the community come in. Like we even had some youth come in and, and sort of do some interviews with us about, you know, how they try and um, live as healthily as, as um, possible. So it was a really interesting time and I really learnt a lot in that sort of three-year period that I then used to sort of go and um, start my own organisation uh, that was co-founded between myself and uh, Ben Bowen, uh, Corey Mann from New South Wales. And um, through that work, we were doing some business development uh, projects, um, trying to find ways to help mob to start their own businesses. And towards the end of that um, organisation, um, we were uh, doing some technology capacity building work within uh, remote communities, mainly with women, um, trying to uh, help them find ways to use technologies to start their own business. They won't take it away from me. So the funding for my role uh, at the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation came from a US-based organisation, the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. Um, so uh, in collaboration with the City of Sydney Council, we submitted a, an application um, to that US-based organisation and uh, luckily we won that funding. Um, and that funding was based around setting up uh, a, some demonstration projects in New South Wales. Um, predominantly, um, Aboriginal carbon farming projects sit across the top of the country and are mainly involved with the Savannah burning methodologies. There are a couple of others outside of that methodology, but that's predominantly where Aboriginal carbon farming projects are from. So, you know, the thinking was to use one of the other 30 odd methodologies that can generate carbon credits uh, in a New South Wales based project. So, you know, we went through a bit of a process of cold calling different um, land managers in, in New South Wales, mainly through the um, local Aboriginal Land Council system. Um, and we uncovered a few quite quickly. Um, I went out and visited most of them um, sort of early in 2022, just to have a look and meet some of the people, meet some of the board members and, um, you know, see what, what we were dealing with. So after that, the majority of my time has just been spent trying to secure funding to get some of these projects up and running. Um, the biggest issue with um, a lot of uh, these kinds of organisations is that they are land rich and cash poor. So to implement uh, uh, mixed plantings, mixed environmental plantings um, project or a human induced regeneration project, you know, they need to have, you know, four to six years worth of project funding um, to get them through baseline and to get them to a point where they can actually um, go through the process to be issued carbon credits and potentially make some of that um, initial investment back. So, you know, we've spoken with a whole range of different people from, you know, traditional lenders, so the major banks, um, some other um, investment companies. Um, we've gone through developing a whole range of different 
um, modeling, sort of financial modeling to look at what investment in these projects might look like and and what the return on investment might look like and how long it would take to be able to repay that investment. But um, so far, sort of more than 12 months on, we are still um, not really much closer to securing investment for these kinds of projects. So even though we've done a lot of work in this space so far, I think our job now is to really get out there and try and speak with as many different people as possible around um, trying to secure some funding for these projects. They won't take it away from me. There's a number of issues that I think we need to start talking about at a national level around carbon farming and our local system around the governance for carbon projects um, and also investment in, um, in uh, projects. Uh, I think the local supply of carbon credits is actually quite low, whereas the local demand is actually quite high. And if you go through and have a look at um, different corporations offsetting behaviour through Climate Active, you can see that, you know, while they are all buying local um, carbon credits or um, ACUs, in some instances, it's a very small percentage. In other instances, it's like 100% of their carbon footprint is 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 offset using um, ACUs or locally sourced carbon credits. So there's a bit of a, a bit of a spectrum there, and I I guess two things are happening. One is that you know that supply is not meeting demand, um, and the other might be that you know it is a lot cheaper to to buy offsets from overseas. So um, again, I think that might be another another spectrum where um, uh, individual organisations are sort of swapping or sort of on that on that sort of line between both those two uh, extremes around um, what they're doing with their offsets there. They might be buying what they can afford locally and then um, uh, sourcing the rest of their offsets from overseas because they might just have a sort of set budget. And I really think um, the government has started to look at some of those behaviours and has started to look at um, how it might change some of the regulations around corporations' carbon offsetting behaviours. But the thing that I feel the government is not looking at is what kind of policies it can put in place to open the bandwidth of investment into local projects. If you take, um, for instance, that um, Aboriginal people have um, direct interest over arguably 100% of the country, but um, they have recognised interest over over around 54% of the country. You know, we are um, one of the biggest players in this space, and yet um, it's hard to sort of get traction with policymakers or um, a number of other people who, you know, you could potentially bring on board as, as allies to help you to um, um, come up with a, a nationwide strategy that can that can be a bit more directive in um, how this whole um, carbon farming ecosystem can be um, developed and and sort of maximised. And at the moment, it's a bit ad hoc. So uh, yeah, it's it's been difficult to um, have conversations with the right people at this point, so that we can start getting some traction on having those policies changed. They won't take it away from me. 
think there's still a bit of a colonial hangover in a lot of ways um, in this country. And I see it or I sort of pick it up in a lot of um, conversations that we have. And it is particularly around investment. Like I, I feel like um, there is added risk or there is sort of a reduced appetite to um, invest in Aboriginal controlled projects. You know, it's not uh, sort of, um, it's not really overt. You know, we don't really have any conversations with people who are being overtly racist towards us. It's just the way that the that the system was set up. And, you know, we sort of see it play out in a number of different ways. So, you know, you hear stories about um, new methodologies being developed. And if there are Aboriginal people in those rooms, it's very hard for them to be heard properly. Um, because they're just outnumbered. And so, you know, you can see the way that methodologies have been developed. And I think the biggest outlier in that is the Savannah burning methodology. Like that is based on Aboriginal cultural practice largely. So that methodology works really, really well with Aboriginal um, people and with what Aboriginal um, traditional owners want to do on their own country. But some of the other methodologies, again, because there haven't been Aboriginal people involved in those method development, it, it kind of locks Aboriginal people out of it. And so I really feel like the clean energy regulator needs to do some work to um, maybe rejig some of the methods um, so that it, it is a little bit easier for um, Aboriginal projects to um to be able to seek funding. I think Climate Active needs to be changed as well. I think this sort of annual process makes it really, really difficult to um, secure long-term investment because there's no real motivation for corporations to look into that long-term view of, okay, if we go on this journey with with this um, group of Aboriginal people, uh, in this project, if we look at a 10-year window to invest in this project or maybe even 12 years, you know, we will recoup our investment plus we'll have all of these other social and cultural impacts that come along with that work. I really feel like um, that annual climate active cycle makes it very, very difficult for us to have those longer-term conversations with corporations around uh, investing in uh, projects long-term to be able to get long-term benefit. I guess um, one thing that we're talking about internal, internally that might change that is, um, ironic, uh, ironically, the um, so the AUKUS submarine deal. So, you know, that's over a 30-year um, horizon um, and, you know, billions and billions of dollars is a lot of money up front that's going into that. So it really does provide a bit of cover for us to have that argument with um, different people who might want to buy carbon credits long-term or buy high-integrity carbon credits, uh, at least in the long-term, that if you really want to secure supply, then you need to get in at the sort of ground floor and um, investment is that is that vehicle to help secure some of that um, long-term supply of high-integrity carbon credits. This land owns me. So why do we consider Aboriginal projects to produce high integrity carbon credits? I think the reason is because 
the main function of um, developing Aboriginal projects is not only that it provides revenue to some of the some of the poorest people in the country, but it gets traditional owners back on their country doing what they want to do, which is in most cases um, putting ecosystems back together and looking after that country, which is their cultural responsibility to to take care of country, to look after our totem systems, to make sure that you know the the land is is back in harmony. So you know the way that um, the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation talks about Aboriginal projects is that that work of getting people back on country and doing all of the things that a lot of the methods spell out, um, you know, planting plants, um, uh, looking after the ecosystem, all of that work um, is what Aboriginal people want to do. They're not really focused on generating carbon credits. They're not really focused on a revenue stream that goes on for a number of years. They just want to get back on the country and and do all of the work that they um, have been um, stopped from doing for a long period of time. So it is really about that social impact, that cultural impact and that environmental impact that is the is the priority for us in implementing these kinds of projects. And and through um, through uh, implementing projects, using that as our priority, the carbon credits that that flow from these projects are just are just um, outputs of that work. So, our major focus in um, developing projects with Aboriginal people on their own land is not around generating carbon credits. It's just about getting them back on the land. And through that lens and through that process. Um, we're able to demonstrate that there's a whole range of other benefits that come from the work. And that's what we believe value adds to those carbon credits and makes them high integrity. They won't take it away from me. The other piece of work that that I've been focused on um, in the New South Wales context is around uh, the cultural fire credit that we launched with um, the Fire Sticks Alliance last year. Um, we all remember that it was not too long ago that, um, well, in my experience of being in Sydney during that time, you know, we had three days of living in heavy smoke and, you know, it looked like, um, like our skies, um, were very, very dark for a number of days. And I, I, I could only imagine what it was like for the people, um, down around or in, uh, uh, all of those, um, affected areas across the country. I can only imagine what it was like for them having to live through that. So, you know, the, the cultural fire credit is really about giving people, uh, everyday people, as well as corporations and as well as governments, a real opportunity to invest in cultural fire practice. Um, there's a range of benefits that, that, that come from um, cultural fire programs and cultural fire practice. Um, the main one that a lot of non-Indigenous people will be really focused on will be around bushfire mitigation. Um, for the local traditional owners, it will be not just around stopping bushfires, but um, returning those ecosystems to health, um, maintaining the um, the ecosystems so that their um, totem systems can thrive. I remember one of the most harrowing experiences during that 2019-2020 um, um, bushfire season was um, reading some of the some of the posts on on Twitter from 
you know, different mob I knew that lived in some of those areas, you know, they were really traumatized that their country was on fire, that their totems were burning. And, you know, we can, if you, if you can, if you Google search some of the impacts of those fires, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to see things like 3 billion animals perished, um, you know, massive amounts of land were burnt to ash. Um, there was like three times, um, three times as much um, carbon emissions as the whole country um, emits in one year uh, was released during that um, six-week period. So if we're ever going to get serious about um, sequestering carbon and meeting our 2030 targets, then I think action around uh, bushfire mitigation is something that we really need to take seriously or else we're just going to see all of that hard work just literally going up in smoke periodically. So um, the work that we've been doing around trying to um, implement the cultural fire credit system by talking with shire councils and you know big regional councils of trying to find a way to to um, get this funded in a in a in a systematic um, and sustainable way is um, something that we think is really really important and from talking with people and residents in some of those areas they see it as, as being really really important as well we just need to um, uh, find better ways to to try and finish off these conversations or actually have these conversations go somewhere rather than just be treated as a sort of nice curiosity by some of the people that we're talking talking with like people need to get serious about this stuff or else we're just going to run the risk of um, bushfires coming through more and more often and being much, much worse than they had been previously. They won't take it away from me. I'd like to thank everyone who's listened to our podcast so far. It's been a real um, surprise for us to see how popular these podcasts have been. Our, our goal for these podcasts was to um, provide a bit of an, an an insight to a larger audience for some of the conversations that we have internally and, and with some of the other um, people who we work with around the country. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for showing your interest in listening to our to our podcast so far. Um, we have a lot more uh, interesting podcasts planned, so please stay, stay tuned. Um, please keep listening. Um, if you could um, give us a, a review on the podcast platform that you're listening to, that would really help us to reach a, a larger audience. So um, please, if you could find some time to um, uh, give us some feedback, that would be um, excellent. Um, thank you uh, for sitting through a solo pod podcast. I'm sure it wasn't easy to um, listen to just one voice for the last 20 minutes or so um so thank you for um sitting through that and uh we'll be back with another guest shortly from me. this has been another episode of the law of the land podcast nature reparations through an indigenous lens this episode was recorded on the lands of the gadigal and wongal people this podcast is edited by Eli Corliss.